0: Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Many thanks to Brady and Cam for leading us in worship. Miss Diana is under the weather, so we pray for her speedy recovery. We also look forward to meeting in the Lord's house for our Christmas Eve candlelight service next week. And what a blessing to have Christmas on a Sunday this year. Boy, does that rattle some cages. As much as we deeply love spending time with family, despite what the Hallmark card says, Christmas is about Christ. And what better way to spend the Lord's Day than celebrating the Lord? Of course, for those with children, we know how special Christmas morning can be, so our doors will open at 1045 for our regular service so you can still have that special morning. Beloved, we seek to be a faithful people in the town of Lanesville, Indiana. God's eye is on His church, and His love and His affection and His discipline and His care is for His church. When Scripture declares in Revelation that Jesus stands at the door and knocks, Jesus was not knocking on the door of sinners' hearts, as you so often hear. He was knocking on the door of a wayward church. That's his primary focus. Why? Because God is for God. Meaning that all that God is doing in the world is done with his glory in mind. And when he, and he gets the most glory by redeeming men, women, and children from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And working all things that are happening in the world for the good of God of those he has called to himself, for those that he has purchased and ransomed. Yes, he knows all that the wicked are doing, and not a single act will go unaccounted for. But, beloved, he stands at the door and knocks. That's for us. He is knocking at the door of his churches, his wayward churches. May that not be said of us this morning as he watches over his word and his worship at Harrison Hills. May he find us rightly dividing the word, rightly applying the word, and worshiping in spirit and in truth this morning. Amen? Amen. Well, last week we completed our two-part series titled Parable and Prophecy. And we witnessed Jesus use parables in a way that he had never done before. Now before those without ears to hear or eyes to see could not understand the meaning of a parable, but here Jesus allows those who he was speaking to, the sanhedrin, to be full, to understand fully that, God, that He had spoken this parable against them. Jesus told the religious leaders of Israel that they were hypocrites that their worship was false, that not only had they always killed the messengers sent to her, calling her to repentance, but that they would continue this tradition by killing the very Messiah. They would kill the son, and thus the vineyard would be given to others. The Jews would no longer be the protector and the possessor of the presence of God. He would give it to another, announcing, of course, the grafting in of the Gentiles and of the church age. Jesus would be the final, last call to the nation of Israel. And of course, through masterful questioning, Jesus walks these religious elite into proclaiming their own condemnation. And of course, they are furious. They are seething. The only thing that kept them from stoning and killing Jesus right then and there, especially after exposing their scams that they were running in the court of the Gentiles, remember, that Jesus had just cleared out, was the fear of the people. The people knew Jesus did the right thing by clearing out and cursing the temple, charging the equivalent of $5 inside the temple for a pair of doves that cost 15 cents right outside the gate. It's like buying lunch at Disney World, right? $40 for a hamburger. You know you're getting ripped off. The Sanhedrin had lost tremendous face, and they feared the crowd. Of course, we know that God was using all of these factors and circumstances to ensure the perfection of the divine timetable. The Lamb of God would be perfectly sacrificed on Passover, and not a day sooner. And thus we were left last week with the Sanhedrin leaving Jesus absolutely enraged. He called them wicked and they knew it. He told them even more that they were going to kill the son in the parable. You are going to collude and scheme because you think you will keep your power. You will lie and you will kill to protect your little kingdom. And thus verse 12 where we finished last week we saw them leave Jesus in a rage to plot further evil. Now in truth, when Jesus cleared out and cursed the temple, exposing the scams, it was then and there his death warrant was well and truly signed. But this was adding more fuel to the fire that was going to combust at just the right moment. Now today we are going to begin to see the fruit of their collusion and planning to bring down this troublemaker from Galilee In our series going forward, we're going to see three coordinated attacks come. A three-pronged attack, one after the other after the other. And each one we'll be looking at individually as they're so rich in theology and application. But to give you a broad overview of our series of the conniving three-pronged attack against Jesus, it will involve each individual element of the Sanhedrin, meaning each representative of religious life in Israel, along with a very strange bedfellow in today's text. Now, our first attack will come today from both the Pharisees and the Herodians in verses 13 through 17. The next assault in part two will come from the Sadducees in 18 through 27. And finally, a somewhat unique approach from a scribe in 28 through 34. And as we approach these traps, these attempts to trap our Lord, we're reminded that these Are critical building blocks toward our redemption, beloved. All of this wickedness, all this entrapment, all this collusion that we're going to be seeing, God used toward the saving of men's souls. So let us keep that at the forefront as we watch these attacks unfold against the most innocent Lamb of God. We have so much to cover in our first part, so with that, let us dive into our text this morning as we begin part one. Mark 12:13 through17, that's Mark 12:13 through17. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. And they came and said to him, "Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth." Is it lawful to pay a tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar... The things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text this morning. Lord, as we watch the wickedness of the men that you have ordained to bring about your divine timetable, Lord, that you might suffer, die, and be resurrected for our redemption. But Lord, as we watch this three-pronged attack against you, we are reminded, Lord, that if you were subject to attack, Lord, if you were persecuted, Lord, a servant is no greater than his master. And Lord, we ask that we would be mindful of that this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that the arrow would find its mark. Lord, we do not know every need in this congregation this morning, but you do. So we ask that you would wield the world with power in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's dive right into the nitty-gritty of our first attack here. We have so much to cover. So with our opening verse verse 13, "Look with me, beloved, then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him. Now pause there for a moment, and let's look at our players. Then they sent. So first question, obviously, is who is they? Well, they are the Sanhedrin, right? These are orders from on high, meaning these are orders from the very people that Jesus just spoke to in the temple court. And who do they send? Now, this is fascinating. First, they send the Pharisees. Now, that's not too much of a shocker there, right? What is shocking is who they're with, the Herodians. But by way of reminder, quick reminder, who first are the Pharisees? Well, by the numbers, the Pharisees were actually a minority in the Sanhedrin, but they were still represented. And we remember that they prided themselves, right, as being the keepers of the law. They supposed themselves to be the holiest among them all, right? They prided themselves on being separate from the masses. In fact, the word Pharisee in Hebrew literally means to be separated. But that's what makes the parties to this first attack so amazing. So first we have the Pharisees, the separated ones, doing anything but being separated, but instead are joining forces with whom? The Herodians. Now who were they? Well, they were a completely secular group of people. They were Hellenistic Jews. That means they were Greek Jews who supported Herod, hence the name, right? That means they supported the Romans. They supported Roman law. Now, in normal times, the Pharisees hated the Herodians. The Herodians were a a political party who wanted to restore a Herod to the throne in Judea. And, of course, who did the Pharisees want? They wanted someone from a descendant from David to be on the throne. So they loathed them, right? They were on the opposite sides politically, spiritually, you name it. So these are very strange bedfellows to be together. Yet we are reminded of the ancient proverb, are we not? The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Of course, we can look the world over and be amazed at the different forces of wickedness that are willing to come together and tolerate one another if it means being able to attack Christianity. Of course, one of the most prominent that comes to mind is the relationship of the LGBTQ religion with that of Islam. That's a fascinating bedfellow, is it not? Islam utterly disdains Homosexual acts. There are many Islamic countries that will execute those caught carrying out homosexual acts, either by the government or by mob justice. Yet how often do you hear the high priests within the LGBTQ say a word against Islam? Never. Never. Many Muslims will kill them in certain countries, and yet they are silent. Why? Because they hate Christ more. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Even if they dislike each other, even if they loathe each other, Jesus Christ is the ultimate enemy. The same demonic forces give speed to them both. And so it is here today, we have two strange bedfellows, dispatched by the Sanhedrin, united in the cause that we see at the end of verse 13, which is what? In order to trap him in a statement. Of course, any time they question Jesus, it was to trap him, right? Any time they question Jesus, they think they've outsmarted him or that they've put him on the horns of a dilemma. Once again, that very catch-22 they think they have are the precise reason that they brought the Pharisees and the Herodians here together. No matter which way Jesus is going to go on their question, no matter which answer he's going to give to their question, they want the subject matter witness there to take Jesus down. If Jesus answers one way, we have the Pharisees there to accuse him. If he answers the other way, we have the Herodians there to do the same. It really is diabolically planned, with them covering what they think is either conceivable answer from Jesus Yes, indeed, they've got him now. The Pharisees can get Jesus for the wrong religious answer, and the Herodians can get him for the wrong political answer. Either way, but in truth, it is far better for the Pharisees if the Herodians get Jesus here, right? Because if Jesus runs afoul of Rome, if Jesus crosses the civil authorities, if Jesus is arrested by Roman forces, what will happen to Jesus' popularity? It will be gone. And what did the Jews think Messiah was going to do for them? He was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors. He was going to kill the occupiers. If he was arrested by them, he's obviously not Messiah. Problem solved. So all of these angles and politics are being considered and schemed and planned in the background. So let us watch the strategy as the trap is sprung. Look to verse 14. Verse 14 And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Now pause there. Well, this certainly is a strategy, right? What device are they employing here? Flattery, right? On the nose flattery. Now, before we dive into this obscene flattery, let's bring that a little closer to home. Christian, should we engage in flattery in our speech? Now we pause on this because flattery has become one of our socially acceptable sins in our culture. Flattery is the same sin as gossip. They're two sides of the same coin, right? Gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying something to their face that you would never say behind their back, It's the same sin, gossip and flattery. So here now, back in our text, we see what could only be described as the the putrid sweetness of flattery, right? From the Pharisees, what they bring here. Oh, the flowery religiosity of it all. Teacher, truthful, impartial, teaching the way of God, right? This is the language of the Pharisees showing us what dishonest political animals the religious elite were. That's no different today. Those in high places of evangelicalism often become co-opted and creatures of the establishment, political creatures. They possessed the scripture, yet they did not heed it. A lying tongue. Hates those it crushes, and a flattering mouth works ruin, Proverbs twenty six twenty eight. A man who flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his steps, Proverbs 29, 5. Even the psalmist gets in on the action. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, the tongue that speaks great things, Psalm twelve three. But they did not slip into this flattery. They laid it on thick. Right in all wickedness, thinking that they have Jesus all buttered up now, not only having told Jesus right what they would love to hear about themselves, frankly, but putting such a high standard in front of Jesus that he would surely have to give an answer. Here comes the trap. Last part of verse 14. Is it lawful to pay a tax to Caesar or not? Oh boy, look out. Right? Hot potato coming in. But we need some background here if we're to appreciate the absolute diabolical nature of this question. Now realize and recall that this land had been under Roman rule and jurisdiction for almost 100 years at this point. Right? And every year the taxes would go up and up. Nothing new under the sun, right? (laughs) Right? And this enraged the Jews, not only because they considered this tax to be theft, but it went to support their pagan gods and their pagan practices. Right? It supported their temples. It literally funded their own oppression. Again, nothing new under the sun. But now they were up to three different taxes they had to pay. Right? First you had the ground tax. That was 10% of all the grain, and that was 20% of all the wine and fruit that was produced. And you had a straight income tax of 1% of your income. That actually sounds pretty good right about now. Finally, and what our text speaks of today, you had the poll tax. And that was a flat tax of one denarius. That was basically a day's wage. It was paid from all men from 14 years old to 65. Anytime a census was taken, which was basically once a year, every year. Women as well, 12 to 65. So we'll talk more about this ever-important denarius as we come to it in our texts later on. But taxation is a huge flashpoint of controversy with the Jews. And here we are at the height of Passover, and they think that they're throwing a grenade into the powder keg here. Jesus is going to go down one way or another on this. He's either going to lose the loyalty of the people by saying we should pay to Caesar, or he's going to run headlong into the civil Roman authority as an insurrectionist by saying they should not pay Caesar. That's the state of the chessboard. And I suppose after Jesus put them on the horns of a dilemma earlier with the question of John the Baptist being a prophet or not, perhaps turn about as fair play. Right? They're giving it right back. So back to their question. Is it lawful to pay a tax to Caesar or not? Now the first question is, what law are they talking about? Roman law? No. Right? Here they are speaking of God's law. And we know from reading this interaction that the tax in dispute, the tax in question, is the poll tax. That's why the denarius is called for. That's what you paid it with. They're not even talking about the grain or the wine or even the income tax. It was the poll poll tax that was in question, and that raises the stakes. Dr. John MacArthur, he wades into this one, writing, But the tax the Jewish people hated most was the poll tax. Everyone paid for living under Rome's authority. They found it especially offensive because it suggested that Caesar owned them while they passionately viewed both themselves and the nation as solely God's possession, close quote. So do we see the background here? This is not merely a question of finances and money, right? This question is cutting to the, their very heart of their very identity as a nation, as a chosen people of God. So this question is brilliantly evil, right? They're not weighing the civil legality of paying a poll tax to Caesar, they're asking whether a Jew should pay a tax in view of his theocratic relationship to God. So watch how this unfolds. Moving to verse 15. Verse 15, they put the question to Jesus. Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Paying this poll tax violates everything we are as Jews, as God's chosen people. Should we pay it? Or should we not pay it? Let's get this on record for all to hear. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, Luke's account of this says Jesus detected their trickery. Paul uses the same descriptor of Satan's trickery in the garden when tempting Eve, Panaguria. They're really not keeping great company here, I would say. Having an intent to trap. They're not as they seem. They come to entangle, to ensnare, to capture, right? But Jesus knows the heart. He knows our thoughts as if they're spoken words. He knows our intentions as if they were written upon our foreheads. And knowing some of the things that can run through our minds on any given day, how great is his mercy toward us. Jesus sees their wicked hypocrisy and trickery as plain as can be. He sees their duplicity, the belying of one's true intentions by deceptive words. He sees their insincerity, their dissimulation, meaning to hide under a false appearance, right? Hiding or disguising one's true thoughts or feelings. Thus Jesus said to them, why are you testing me? Beloved, apart from... The Lord urging Israel and Malachi to test him in the giving of the tithe. Any other time in scripture, it does not go well to test the Lord. And what Jesus does next is brilliant and fascinating, really. Bring me a denarius to look at. Now, we've already talked about this being the denomination, right, by which you would pay your yearly poll tax. But we haven't yet described the actual coin. And this is vital to the entire scene and context. If you were to look at this denarius, this was a Roman silver coin. And as we'll see shortly in our text, it bore an image, right? It would have bore the image of Caesar. And usually every new emperor would mint their own coinage, right? So this one brought to Jesus would have bore an inscription. And we know this because there are many real examples of these coins recovered and preserved. This coin would have read, Tabor's Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So this coin not only literally carried an idolatrous image upon it to the Jews, but it said that the person on this coin is the son of God. He is divine. That's some rich irony right there, isn't it? But it goes even deeper when we understand this coin. Because it was so blasphemous, so idolatrous, that meant two things. One, it was yet another reason why they so loathed and hated this poll tax that they had to pay homage, essentially, and declare that another owns them with a coin that was blasphemous. But it also meant that no Jew would carry this coin. They wouldn't touch it. Jews carried shekels. They carried other copper coins. They would never carry a denarius. It would almost be considered defiling to do so. And so what does Jesus ask for? A denarius. Something no Jew would ever touch. So where, oh where, did this denarius come from? Short answer is, I don't know. But how does Mark choose to describe the Pharisees here? As hypocrites. As hypocrites. Again, we can't conclusively state this. I am surmising here, but imagine Jesus asking for this coin. And there they stand. Who's going to pull one of these coins out of their pocket? Hypocrite. Because someone does. Someone has a denarius, right? Naughty, naughty. Someone touched it. In fact, it's possible that Jesus himself wouldn't even touch it. Our text says that I may what? Look at it. Bring me a denarius to look at. Never says he took it. Never says he touched it. Just looked. Now look at verse 16. Verse 16. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar. Now hearing Jesus speak of likeness and inscription now should give you a very different color to the situation, right? While the Pharisees and Herodians were ready for either answer Jesus gave, the hope and the expectation really is that Jesus is going to say what? Don't pay Rome don't pay Rome. Having Jesus executed on religious matters was going to be a good, more, good deal more difficult than claiming he's an insurrectionist. In fact, we see that just at Jesus' mock trial, don't we? What do they accuse Jesus of? Just such a thing. He said, don't pay taxes to Caesar. Of course, that's not true, but that was the easiest way to have him killed. The Romans don't care about religious squabbles between people. Handle that yourselves. No, they expected Jesus to say, don't pay. How could the supposed Messiah, who's supposed to overthrow the Romans, support paying tax to them? He won't. And then we've got him. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Now, Jesus' response is masterful, and I've labored to get to it rather quickly here, much quicker than we usually get through a text, because here, Jesus' response is the linchpin of this exchange. It's here that we find the meaning of the text, where we find God's primary meaning and purpose in the text. So look with me, beloved, at verse 17. Verse 17, And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's, and they were amazed at him. Oh, the riches contained in Jesus' response. Well, now the first observation is that Jesus does not give a political answer, because the answer is spiritual. We've often said from this pulpit that just about everything we say and do is what? It's a theological statement, right? Everything we say or do says something about what we believe about God. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Your theology is going to leak out. Talk to me for five minutes and something about your theology in that moment, in that day, is going to leak out. No one's going to talk to me again. Don't worry. So those sent to trap Jesus, they're what? They're thinking politically. But this isn't a political question or a political issue. It's a spiritual one. Beloved, yes, we should vote. Yes, we should run for office. Yes, we should desire to promote godly politicians. We should desire for our laws to be rooted in God's precepts. But we don't have a political problem in the United States. We have a spiritual problem. In our country. When someone is truly born again, their politics will take care of itself. Politics flows downstream from the heart. There is no political solution for a heart that needs to be made new. I'm not a Christian because I'm a conservative. I'm a conservative because I'm a Christian. Not only can we not address the spiritual with the political, as Jesus demonstrates here, but here we see an excellent text demonstrating what's known as sphere sovereignty. Now, beloved, this is an entire sermon series in and of itself alone. But we see here very briefly that there is a line between the sphere of the church of which Christ is the head And the sphere of government, which God has instituted for both the promotion of good and for the checking of evil. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. That denarius belongs to Caesar. Render it back to him. Pay it to him. Pay your taxes, beloved. Is the very coin you use to pay it blasphemous? Yes, pay it. Will it be used to pay for Roman debauchery and pagan temples? Yes, pay it. Give that denarius to Caesar. The Romans built you roads. The Romans provide infrastructure and other services. That's the deal. Pay it. But know this, the government is not God. Caesar has his role. Make sure that I have a road to drive on to get to Walmart. And that I don't get mugged on the way to the store. And if I do, send the police. We need to see this clear line in scripture because it caused the church in America much vexation during the time of COVID, did it not? Where Caesar left his sphere and came into the church's sphere. We say to Caesar, I will render to you what is yours. And that is all. And I will render to God what is his. Caesar is not entitled to what God demands of me. My worship, my love, my affection, my dedication. This is absolutely critical to remember, beloved. These lines in the times in which we live. Where government grows larger and more intrusive and more hostile. We have shared before that the more secularized a society becomes, as Christianity shrinks in a given society, what grows at exactly the same pace? What fills the vacuum of a retreating Christianity? It's the state. It's Caesar. Ultimately, this is why, as Christians, we oppose big government. Because a state that exceeds the boundaries set forth by God will eventually desire to be God to her citizenry. A government that has grown outside of her sphere is going to compete for the love and the loyalty and the position that belongs to God alone. So God gives strict boundaries like we see in our text. They are divine boundaries. And within those boundaries, you will find our joyful obedience to the God-ordained institution of government. But only insofar as they operate within the dictates given to Caesar by God. If you think governmental overreach is going to be something we will contend with as a church going forward, we would do well to remind ourselves of these principles from Scripture. We are faithful citizens. We pay our taxes If Caesar stays in his God-ordained lane, you will find no more loyal citizen than a Christian. We will render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. As wicked as he may be, we will pay. And we will obey the laws that promote the good and check the evil. That is all. Anything outside of that, we are under no obligation to obey. Meaning, we do not give to Caesar that which is God's. Christ is head of the church. You will often hear and may have even been taught that as Christians we obey the government at all times unless it tells you to sin. Unless they tell you you can't preach the gospel, they're always to be obeyed. But some of you have heard that, but some of you think that. That's a concept that's foreign to Scripture. So you might be curious about where it came from. How have we so ingrained into our minds that we owe a deference and an allegiance to a sphere God created that is only owed to God himself? How does that happen? Well, Jesse Johnson of the Master Seminary in his book, City of Man, Kingdom of God, great read, traces back the roots of this thinking that's so prevalent today the thinking that unless the government tells us to sin, we must obey it unquestionably. Now he writes, quote, Prior to the Protestant Reformation, the Catholic Church was the law throughout Europe. It approved the Holy Roman Er Emperor and expected all government officials to be under church authority. Right? The government... So the idea that the government could command you to sin was a logical nullity. Right? To obey the government was to obey the church. And the church was led by the Pope, right? Therefore, the law of the land was the law of the Lord. See how that happened? But now, along comes one Martin Luther. And Luther wanted to be able to teach Christians how they were supposed to relate to the government. But Luther, of course, was a product of his time. He was deeply ingrained in that. He was an Augustinian monk (laughs) coming out of that system, right? But basically, what Luther ended up writing, and in fact he codified it in the Augsburg Confession, is that obedience is owed to government and magistrates at all times, quote, save only when they command to sin. So Martin Luther, as we said, was a product of his time. right? And while Luther's position was still deeply ingrained toward that Catholic control of government, it did open that tiny people for a place for civil disobedience, which was anathema to Catholics, right? So now we have the Catholic teaching completely commingling the law of the land and the law of the Lord, and we have the Lutheran view that, yes, government demands our complete loyalty unless they command us to sin, right? So between those two, can you see how that teaching and that sentiment remains pervasive today? But other Protestants came behind Luther And said this goes way too far. Jesse Johnson, he continues, quote, Some other early Protestants who had broken away from both the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor, those would be people like John Calvin and English and Scottish Puritans, saw that the Lutheran view of government was too expansive. By teaching that government is owed allegiance at all times... Except in rare cases of commanding sin, the Lutherans ended up demanding an allegiance to government that exclusively belongs to God. It's often this Lutheran view that's held by those who see the church and state as being in partnership somehow to advance the kingdom on earth. And thus many English-speaking Protestants, they charted a different course. Puritans began teaching that the king himself was subject to God. And his ability to administer laws was limited by God's word. And for this reason, the Westminster Assembly declared that government was designed by God to check evil and to promote good. You probably heard me use that verbiage earlier. So any laws inside of those parameters were lawful. And Christians were to submit only to lawful commands. Now, by insisting on that word lawful, the Puritans were really, they were creating a distance between themselves and government, right? They were permitting a looser standard for obedience, but not requiring it. This wiggle room allowed them to discern the what and the why behind government commands and whether we're bound to obey, right? After all, the government is not God, but the government is established by God to further his purposes on earth. Now, I know that that's a bit of a deep dive there, (laughs) but we must glean this application from the meaning of our text. We will face this again as a church, and we must understand what our loyalties are to Caesar and what our loyalties are to God. Caesar does not get unquestioned and unlimited loyalty unless they tell us to sin, That is a leftover vestige of the Catholic Church being the state. That's not what we see in Scripture. But the reality, beloved, of Jesus' answer today, this trap set for him, right, while being masterfully answered, it leaves a demand upon our lives. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's, yes, but also give to God what is God's. Render it to God. Give God what he is owed. Should that not grind us to a halt? Give back to God what he is owed. Our word there, apodidomai, meaning to repay, to give back what you have been given. What a humbling, impossible place to reside let Jesus tell the Pharisees and the legalists to give back to God what he is owed. <laughs> there is no greater cure for the legalist, no truer antidote to, to show them, to remind them that they cannot earn what God has given them. Tell a legalist, tell a Pharisee to repay God what he is owed. Render it to him. <laughs> In truth, we cannot. Our humblest of offerings we can bring our reasonable act of service and worship we may bring. But can we actually return to God what he has given? Can we adequately render unto God what is God's as he deserves? Beloved, we will spend our lives in joyful pursuit of it, but the truth is no. We can't render to God what is truly his as he deserves. And beloved, that's the point of grace. That's the point of the gospel. The cry of the Christian, I desire to give God what he deserves, to thank him as he deserves, to render and to repay what he has given. But I know how unworthy and unable I am to do so. That place, beloved, is called the foot of the cross. There's no more beautiful place. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this text for us, Lord, that we might learn from it, that we might swim in it, that we might apply it to our lives. Lord, we thank you for your divinely orchestrated spheres of the church, of government, and of home. Lord, we thank you for laying those out for us, for teaching us about those. Lord, we thank you for government. We thank you for the means that they are in our life, the common grace that they are in our life, Lord, that we might live peaceable and quiet lives, Lord, working with our hands. Lord, as we watch this three-part series continue against a perfect man, against an innocent man, Lord, we ask that we would be reminded of that. Lord, we're reminded of the words of Charles Spurgeon. Lord, if any man think ill of us, do not be angry with him, for we are far worse than he thinks us to be. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to walk in joy this Christmas season. Lord, bring us back together. Lord, keep us warm. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.